Interpreting home. Dispatched from Brussels, we arrived in Maastricht, of all places, that evening. The American army had taken over an old hotel near the railway station. I went to look around. I hadn't been in Maastricht since the middle of 1942. There was no war damage in Maastricht. I walked to the district where my aunt and her family had lived. Her house was intact, but it was occupied by strangers. I spoke to some neighbors, and none of them could tell me anything about the Schmitz. I stayed there for a few days and used my spare time trying to find people I knew. I'd met many people there in the past. On the second or third day while roaming around, I saw a familiar face on the balcony. It was Mr. Brun and his wife, staring in my direction. They didn't seem to recognize me in my American uniform. I called out, Mr. Brun, don't you recognize me? Oh, he said. Moisha, it's you. Yeah, I smiled. It's me. What's happening here, Mr. Brun? Where's my aunt and the others? Ah, he stammered. You know, your aunt and the children, your uncle, they all went away. They were taken away. They haven't come back. The Bruns were Jews from Germany who had lived in the Netherlands a long time. They'd been fairly wealthy. They'd escaped deportation by hiding somewhere, but their two daughters had not been in hiding and had been arrested. My relatives, the Schmitz, and the two Brun children were gone. The Bruns told me about the roundup that took place in the Maastricht area. Jews were herded together and carted away. The elderly Bruns were among the few who were left. I said to them, Look, I have to go. We're moving out of Maastricht soon, but whenever I can, I'll come see you. I did just that. Whenever I had leave from the army, I went to spend time with them. Theirs was a hollow existence. Though they hoped at first that their daughters would return, they never did. The old people had lost everything. I became like a son to them. They looked forward to my visits and pampered me with all kinds of food and fuss. After I joined the Americans, I found myself facing a sudden major counteroffensive by the Germans. In the middle of December, the Germans made a fast move across Belgium toward Antwerp. They tried to sever the British from the American troops by splitting through the center of the Allied front. The action took place a short distance from our position. During three days of dense fog, German paratroopers dropped from the skies. American soldiers didn't know who was who. They were calling to one another, thinking the Germans were standing right beside them. I was south of Maastricht at the time. My unit didn't know all the details, but we knew there was fighting very close to us. Then the sun came out. The German push was cut off. The Battle of the Bulge was turning in our favor, though there would be more than a month of fighting before it was over. This was the only engagement in which my company was imperiled. After that, we traveled into Germany. I had never dreamed of ending up there. It was just by a stroke of luck in signing on as an interpreter that I was returning to Germany. I experienced a strange feeling when I crossed the border in an American uniform. The crossing point was southeast of Maastricht, and fierce fighting was going on there. Planes and bombs were screaming around us. For the first time, I saw German cities completely destroyed. The cities we drove through were endless rubble. There was almost nothing left. Walls had tumbled down. We had to be careful where we stepped. My group would move into areas immediately after they had been bombed. We were sometimes the first ground force to push forward. There were always several soldiers with me whenever we were ordered to occupy any specific building. 
Even though the Germans were sometimes still shooting from the rooftops, I felt fearless and even recall running way ahead of the other guys. Astounded, the soldiers with me asked, How come you're running ahead of us? What do you think you're doing? Aren't you scared? I answered exultantly, No, I'm not scared. I'm happy. And I forged ahead even faster. They couldn't understand it. Afterwards, they insisted on talking about my behavior. Some of the guys were perceptive and intelligent. A few were college graduates. They continued to question me. How come you're not scared? Because I know you guys are scared, I answered. Several of the soldiers had suffered an emotional collapse. I am enjoying this war, I told them. I've been longing for combat for years. I only wish I could fight. I haven't fought enough. I'd been suppressed for years. The Nazis had muzzled me. They'd almost crushed me. Thinking of what they'd done to me made me ache to tear them apart. I wanted to fight, to take revenge. I had to vent my rage. We moved northward in Germany. We were on the west side of the Rhine River and the German army had withdrawn over the river to the east side. I was stationed then in Krefeld, less than 100 kilometers from Wattenscheid. But Wattenscheid was still in German hands. The Rhine divided the two sides and artillery firing from both banks was ferocious. My unit was billeted in a rich man's villa outside Krefeld. We discovered a large wine cellar full of bottles of choice German wine, which sparked the longest party of my life. We all shared the spoils. I drank six bottles of wine by myself. I was deliriously happy. I sang and played the fool, the happiest man in the world and utterly drunk. By the end of the party, I couldn't move without falling down. We emptied the whole cellar to the last bottle. I was out of commission for at least three days in a sodden haze. None of our group reported for duty. We were all wrecked for three days, officers and everyone. We were never reprimanded for any of this, and the incident stays in my mind as a celebration of the Nazi defeat, a hallelujah victory celebration. We were still on the west side of the Rhine. The German batteries on the east side kept blasting across the river destroying their own cities in order to hit us. I was kept well behind the front lines and was never involved in the battles. Sometimes, however, I had to go forward to investigate or interrogate someone. The army was taking German prisoners and some were high-ranking officers. We needed to pry information from them about German positions and the strength of their troops. The questioning was conducted fairly, unlike what I'd experienced with the Gestapo. The captives were seated in a room and we talked to them. I never saw any brutality. Sometimes we captured an SS man trying to pass himself off as an ordinary soldier. Though I was only supposed to be the translator in cases like these, I participated in the questioning by bringing up points the Americans had not thought of. I was well aware of SS crimes. The black shirts, however, never gave a straight answer. They feigned innocence and denied everything. It was difficult to deal with them. I felt like taking a stick and beating them over the head, applying their own methods to them. The Americans wouldn't tolerate such tactics, so in some ways I felt under restraint. I had to sit and listen to the garbage they spewed out. Interrogations of regular officers were much simpler. The Americans tried to deal with these on a soldier-to-soldier -soldier basis. Strategy and emplacements and military strength were what mainly interested them 
as well as the civilian situation on the other side of the Rhine. The American army had to plan its advance into Germany so as to minimize the loss in human lives. The war was still being fought, and at that time the Americans weren't much interested in probing into criminal responsibility. The Americans made a distinction between the regular army and the SS, knowing that soldiers would ultimately be released after the fighting had ended, whereas the SS might be brought to trial. They therefore guarded the SS more securely. During interrogations, however, the distinction never came out because we had no witnesses or evidence against individual SS officers. Suspecting that a particular person had been a concentration camp guard wasn't proof, and we didn't have the mandate to pursue such suspicions. It was often exasperating. Even after they had lost the west side of the Rhine, the Germans still believed they would win in the end. The prisoners we took were very defiant, and it was their defiance that annoyed me more than anything else. When it was obvious to the rest of the world that they were whipped, they still acted like they were the master race. Often we captured young Nazi soldiers who were only 15 or 16. They knew next to nothing, but were fanatic Nazis. I was shocked by the fanaticism still rampant in Germany. I was horrified to find that belief in Hitler was stronger in 1945 than it had been when I had left seven years earlier. The Germans believed their government's propaganda that they had really won the war, but had been betrayed by a mysterious force. They couldn't grasp that Hitler had lost the war, which seemed impossible to them. While I was stationed in Krefeld, I met a German who identified himself to me as a Jew. He told me he'd been living in Krefeld with a German family. I don't know if it was true or not. He may have been a Nazi who chose hastily to call himself a Jew. A safe cover, suddenly, whereas before the Allies had advanced across Europe, it had been the greatest offense. I was disinclined to believe the man's story. From Kleifeld, I moved south along the west side of the Rhine to Koblenz, then further south to Mainz. When we could finally cross the Rhine River, which was late March or early April 1945, I was posted in Weltsburg. The Allied armies moved in all directions across Germany. I was attached to the army in the south. My unit never came across any concentration camps. But we began to hear the horror stories. When the camps were liberated by Allied troops, photographs of the survivors and ghastly reports appeared in the world press. What went on in the camps became common knowledge. I wasn't surprised to hear all about the camps, but even I was shocked by the extremes to which the Nazis had gone. I'd known that many people would die under their heel. I hadn't imagined the numbers would be so great. At the end of April 1945, we heard that Hitler had killed himself. We weren't sure if it was true, since there were also rumors contradicting this news. He had said he would fight from the mountains of Bavaria. We were close to that area and expected to have to keep on fighting. It was a time full of rumors and uncertainties, though we were confident that the war would end soon. We read the American Army newspaper, Stars and Stripes, eagerly every day. One day it was headlined, Germany Quits. The day before, on May 7, 1945, the Germans had signed the surrender simultaneously in Reims, France, and Berlin, Germany. War in Europe was over. We all congratulated each other. The end of the war against such a threatening and powerful enemy was indeed a great occasion. The American soldiers were happy that they'd be able to return home. There were parties and festivities among us. 
I stayed on in the army of occupation. The American sector was mainly in the south. The part of Germany where I came from was under British command. The French occupied the sector near Strasbourg, and the Soviets were in what would become known as East Germany. With the war over, my unit became involved in civilian administration. I was an interpreter, often involved in investigating irregularities, crimes, or disputes. The languages I used were German, English, and occasionally French. The first time I encountered some French-Canadian soldiers, I guessed they were talking French, but scarcely understood what they were saying. It sounded strange to me. When they switched, more or less, to European French, we communicated with each other more readily. Each of the Allied armies had an engineering division that was rebuilding the railways in its sector. My unit was assigned to the railway system, usually at train stations, to help keep American supplies and personnel moving through the country. A few times, I thought of visiting Wattenscheid. The distance was under 350 kilometers, but transit lines were still disrupted. There was widespread wreckage, and the trains weren't running on schedule. Wattenscheid was also in the British zone, and it wasn't easy to travel between zones, which required special permission. I didn't expect to actually find anyone in Wattenscheid whom I particularly cared to see, so I didn't pursue it. My plan was to go back to the Netherlands eventually. I'd been admitted there before the war with a valid visa. I could resume my interrupted journey from there to the land of Israel. The Netherlands was liberated at the end of the war, just a few days before Germany's complete surrender. Formidable combat had continued there much longer than in other areas, with Canadian troops fighting alongside the British. I couldn't travel to Amsterdam or Franeker until the war was over, and then it took months to repair the railways. I followed the progress through reports and newspapers. The longer I stayed with the army, the more I felt it was a waste of time. There was nothing I could learn. It wasn't interesting. It was peacetime service, working a routine shift and eating huge meals. Every variety of food was provided, and we could eat as much as we wanted. It was all brought from the United States in cans and packages. The quality and quantity were much greater than had been available during the war. On my first morning in the army in Maastricht, I ate twelve eggs for breakfast. I hadn't eaten eggs for years. The farmers hadn't kept hens because they required too much feed. I got very sick as a result of my greed. Even afterwards, when I ate less greedily, I suffered diarrhea for several weeks before adjusting to the rich diet. Meals became the best feature of life with the army. I also learned fluent English, American Army English, of course. The soldiers came from many parts of the United States. I even met a few Jews from New York and New Jersey, and they told me all kinds of things about the country and life there. They talked about black citizens. There were no black soldiers in my outfit. They were segregated and served in different units. I worked directly with the train system, the railway workers, and passengers. Sometimes I spoke with survivors of concentration camps who came through on trains. They told me horrible stories about the camps. I had free passes to travel on trains, so when I was occasionally given leave, I could travel. I managed to go back to Maastricht to visit the Bruns a few times. I had to travel from Weltsburg, Germany, to Liège, where I changed trains for Maastricht. I had lived near Liège for a year, but had never been there. When I finally got there, I could see it was large and sprawling, and no doubt a fine city. Nevertheless, the only part I walked through was the station. I felt no attachment to the place. 
On a visit to the Bruns one evening in mid-1945, I arrived in Maastricht late because the train had been delayed. At the door of the Bruns house, I met a girl searching for a key. I didn't know who she was. Finally, she found the key and unlocked the door. She knew about me from the Bruns and let me into the house. The Bruns were out. I asked her who she was and heard her story. Her name was Shoshana, and she was living with the Bruns who were trying to adopt her. She was a German-Jewish girl whose parents had been killed by the Nazis. She'd been hidden for several years by some miners in the district of Maastricht. She was 18 years of age and engaged to marry a Jewish man who owned a small shop in Hirlin, an industrial city near Maastricht. The Bruns returned home and we all sat down to a meal. I brought food from the army. I stayed at the Bruns for a number of days and sometimes talked with Shoshana, but she wasn't around very often. I was paid regularly by the army and was issued 200 cigarettes every week. I wasn't a smoker, so I sold the cigarettes. At long last, I was accumulating a sizable sum of money, but there was nowhere to spend it. Veldsburg, for instance, was a city in ruins. Few buildings were standing. My unit was living in railway cars, so I saved all my money. I couldn't deposit it anywhere, so I had to keep it on me. I kept it in my pocket or under my pillow, as I had while working on the farm in Waterloo. When I visited the Bruins, I left my savings with them. When I was able to travel to Brussels, I decided to spend one of my breaks from the army with my friend Dirk. I stuffed my duffel bag with food and cigarettes, soap and razor blades, all kinds of scarce items. I wanted to bring these to repay his many kindnesses and his friendship toward me. I went out to Strombeek Bever and found him at home. His wife was there too. They'd just become proud parents. Dirk was so happy to see me and gave me a warm welcome. I unpacked all the goodies I'd brought, and he and his wife danced with delight. I spent a few glowing days with them. I continued to visit the Bruns several times during the rest of 1945. Each visit, I spent time with Shoshana. She would ask me about the army and about Germany. She hadn't been out of a narrow neck of the Netherlands for many years and was curious about other places. The Germans slowly took over the railway system after the Americans handed it back to them. We remained in charge of the railway workers and were still checking the trains, but I felt that I was frittering away my time. There wasn't much to do, and I actually hated being in Germany. I was full of resentment toward the nation. One day, a Jewish girl traveling from Frankfurt to Munich came to our office at the train to complain that she couldn't find a seat on the train. I told her I'd try to get her a seat and went with her into a first-class carriage. A German was sitting there, an arrogant man who looked to me like an SS type. I could imagine him flicking a whip and lashing out at people. I couldn't bear the sight of the man. I said to him, is this your seat? I spoke to him in German. He didn't answer me. He pretended he didn't hear me, didn't see me. I repeated, is this your seat? No response. I grabbed him by the coat. I demanded, is this your seat? He answered, yes, yes. Each word was like a gunshot. Where's your ticket? I persisted. He showed me his ticket. I snapped, get up, get up. And I told the girl, this is your seat now. You sit here. I don't know if his ticket was for that seat. I didn't look at it. All I saw was a Farbissener, a staunch, committed Nazi. I said to him, come with me. He sat motionless. He didn't budge. I pulled him up. I shoved him. 
He was bigger than me, tall and solid, a heavyweight. I was no more than a middleweight, but I had on an American uniform and I was seething with anger. I pushed him forward. I drove him along the platform. He barely moved, so I shoved him like they used to shove me. I hit him in the ribs like they had hit me, like they had hit so many of us. I ordered, go on, faster, move, move, faster, faster. I grew angrier by the minute. He reached the top of the staircase leading down from the platform. Again, he didn't move. I shoved him, then I kicked him. I kicked him so hard that he rolled right down the stairs. He lay at the bottom and didn't get up. I walked away. I left him there. I paid no more attention to him. Some Americans working in the station saw what happened and objected to my actions. You're not supposed to do that, they said. We're going to report you. I had to do that, I countered. It's my job. The guy's a Nazi. He behaves and looks like a Nazi. I had to do that. You do what you want. If you want to report me, report me. They reported me to a senior officer. They said that while I was on duty, I had hit a German passenger and thrown him down the stairs. I was summoned to the office of the major in command of our unit. What happened? The major demanded. What were you doing? I replied, Major, that was my revenge. He knew something about my experiences. He knew I'd been in the underground army. I had to do that, I explained. I had to get it out of my system. Penalize me if you want to. Do what you want. Forget it, he grumbled. I haven't seen anything. I don't know anything. Just don't do it again. Later, the other soldiers told me that they had taken the German to the hospital. His arms and three ribs were broken. I had really let go. I had to deal with Germans every day, and I couldn't pay them back for what they'd done to me and others. I never mixed with Germans. I kept to the American compound where I could live in complete isolation. The army had its own supplies, its own canteen, American movies, and entertainment. The major commanding our unit wanted to recommend me for the officer's training school in the regular army. He laid out the opportunities for me. You can go to the United States. You can get an immigration visa and become an American citizen. I enjoyed my association with the Americans. I found them refreshing compared to Europeans. But I wasn't interested in their enticements at the time. My plan was to go to Israel. I had no other goal. After all that I'd been through, I was convinced that there wasn't a future for Jews anywhere but in Israel. It seemed to me that even Americans didn't like Jews very much. I noticed that some American Jews were always looking over their shoulders to see if they'd said the right thing and done the right thing. The army days grew longer and longer. I decided the time had come to resume my fitful journey to Israel. I resigned from the army. Thank you.